Welcome to the Self-Made Expert Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Morgan, and I love speaking with people who are cultivating economically valuable expertise outside the world of academia and the licensed professions. Some of these conversations end up on this podcast. You can learn more about my work helping indie consultants build an expertise moat at philipmorganconsulting.com. Chris Ferdinandi, welcome to the Self-Made Expert. Thanks, Philip. It's uh, it's really great to be here. Who are you and what do you do? I know the answer, but our listeners don't. Yeah, no. So um, I am a front-end web developer and JavaScript educator. I help people learn how to write JavaScript without the use of frameworks or heavy tool sets. So I'm really focused on um, teaching people how to use what the browser gives you right out of the box. Um, and a big part of big part of my approach and why I do what I do is because I believe there's a simpler and more resilient way for developers to make things for the web. Uh, and so that's really kind of my my core mission there is to try and make the web a less fragile and faster and easier to navigate around kind of place. You went to college for this, right? <laughs> no computer science degree. I have two degrees, neither of them relevant to what I do. One of them arguably useless in most contexts. I, I want to know what they are now because I actually don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, so I have a degree in anthropology, which I originally used to think was the useless degree. And I now actually think it's probably the more useful of my two degrees. Uh -huh. The other one is human resources. Because uh, for a time before I did this, I was an HR pro. Right. And, uh, that one was probably... Probably a phenomenal waste of money. Um, the anthropology degree, I think, really kind of helps me understand and relate to people who aren't me uh -huh. well. And I think that's really helped a fair bit in terms of teaching and um, kind of understanding users and things like that. So th okay, then that means we have to talk about the HR time because that's the stuff you don't want to talk about. So surely you took <laughs> no, away something absolutely. from that. What? Yeah, no, HR is honestly the reason I'm a web developer today. Um, huh. So it's, it's totally fair. So um, I went through about five majors in college. I don't remember what <laughs> all of them were. Um, I know I started undecided. I ended with anthropology and somewhere along the way, um, there was like a business degree in there and maybe like a writing degree. Uh -huh. um, I got enough credits in writing to get a minor in it or English. Uh -huh. but, um, but like senior year, I, um, I realized that as much as I loved learning about anthropology, the study of people, I didn't want to do quote unquote anthropology professionally. I'm a mm -hmm. homebody. Uh, the idea of going and like living in remote, far off places um, wasn't as appealing to me as like kind of learning about the people who live there uh, through through books and study was. Um, yeah. And uh, I kind of fell into a job in human resources. My dad was working in HR at the time. Um, he suggested I might like it. I found an internship at a local. Um, like tech company um, working in HR. And I liked it enough to kind of continue it after college. So um, I ended up at nights going back and getting a degree in HR while working part-time at a local fine pen manufacturer as an HR guy. But um, as much as I, I liked it good enough to just kind of fall into it, uh -huh. um, there was a lot of things about human resources that I didn't like. And so I started writing an HR blog and I really wanted to have more control over the look and feel of it. So uh -huh. I started um, teaching myself HTML and CSS and a little bit of PHP because it was a WordPress site okay. um, to, to customize it. 
Fast forward a few years, and I ended up in a um, training and development role where I was teaching career development advice to engineers. And uh, my manager and I at the time were experimenting with some interesting ways to deliver learning that weren't getting 30 people in a room, putting their butts in seats and talking mm -hmm. to them. Um, and so we had been experimenting with or kind of kicking around the idea of building some sort of like mobile just in time learning, like watch a quick video YouTube style, but like as a private corporate uh -huh. internal kind of thing. Huh. Um, and uh, we wanted to put together a prototype. So we talked to our IT department and they're like, oh yeah, we can do that. It'll take 12 months and a hundred thousand dollars. And it probably won't look exactly the way you want. Uh-huh. We're like, well, that's too long for like a quick, like, let's test this idea and too much money. So we looked at an outside agency and they're like, oh yeah, no, we can do that in six weeks. It'll cost half a million dollars. And we're like, <laughs> well, we're not going to pay that much for a quick prototype either. So my boss who knew I kind of like fumbled around with code a little bit was like, can you do it? And I looked right at him and I said, absolutely not. I'm not that kind of developer. I don't know like backend stuff. And he's like, uh -huh. well, can you learn? And I said, probably not, but I'll give it a try. And so I spent two weeks deep in the bowels of Stack Overflow trying to figure out how to hack a WordPress plugin into something that could mildly support what we were trying to do. Hmm. Um, and somehow I made it work. It was like the worst code I've ever written in my entire life. It was barely <laughs> functional, but it was enough that we were able to kind of like demo it as a proof of concept. Uh -huh. And um, in that moment, I was absolutely hooked going from crazy idea to working thing in a couple of weeks was really stressful and really difficult and really, really exciting. I'm someone who loves making things, but I am not good at working with my hands. And code kind of opened up this ability to put ideas into actual kind of tangible in quotes, but like something you can interact with. And I found that really exciting and really appealing. And that was the moment I decided that I did not want to be in HR anymore. I wanted to be a developer. Although at the time I thought I wanted to be a designer. And so I spent, um, I spent quite a bit of time. I think it, it took like three years before I got my first developer job. But every interview I went on, I kept getting told that I did not know enough JavaScript. And so I kept hmm. bombing all these interviews. Hmm. And that was what really kind of then set me down the path of learning JavaScript and kind of set off this whole daisy chain of how I do what I do today. So much of what what I do around teaching people JavaScript is this weird kind of hybrid of the education stuff I was doing in HR and my love of coding and the fact that I kept failing all these JavaScript interviews and found learning it really, really hard and wanted to make it easier for other people so that they wouldn't have to take four, three to four years to like get their first job. Yeah. Yeah. There's a basket of questions that I'm sitting on here that you seem like the right person to answer. So is training typically handled by HR in, in a sort of, in most corporate settings that you are aware of, does HR tend to manage the training budget? It's a mix. Okay. Um, and it, a lot of it depends on the company. Um, and even when that's true, it's not always true. So HR has a lot of different sub-disciplines. Mm -hmm. um, like recruiting is technically its own discipline, but it's also a form of human resources. And sometimes they have their own executives. Sometimes they roll up into the head of HR. Same with training. But there's this weird thing that happens where some companies have really robust internal training organizations. Some don't, and they outsource everything entirely. Uh -huh. um, and some organizations just don't really have 
like an HR department who's hyper focused on that. And so you might have like the head of engineering determines what kind of right. training is done internally. Okay. Um, I've also seen at companies before you have an HR department with a training wing and then some manager somewhere will go off and just buy a bunch of third party training instead of using the in-house stuff because they don't think it's good enough or they have a budget and they just want to use it. So mm -hmm. They go off and spend it on a bunch of training. Um, yeah. So there's not really one kind of clear cut rule here. A lot of it depends on the organization. But if you didn't know, it sounds like the, the sort of plan of attack would be see if HR handles it, see if sort of the core technical function of the mm -hmm. company handles it. And those would be the two that are most likely to handle it. Yes. And sometimes organizations have different groups that handle different types of training, which makes it even more confusing. Um, okay. So for part of my career, I worked at EMC, which is now part of Dell. And they had a, a the group I was in, which was responsible for I hate this phrase, but like the soft skills training. So yeah. career development, leadership skills, communication skills, things like that. And then they had a whole other wing that did technical stuff. And my group never touched that stuff. And a big part of the reason was that for EMC, their technical training was also a profit center. Like they had a, um, like a learning wing where they sold third party training on their products mm -hmm. to customers and third yeah. party vendors and things like that, in addition to teaching people internally. Um, so it can get really confusing, but if that's kind of, you're looking to get into that in a company, um, HR is a good place to start maybe, although sometimes they can be, um, they can be a roadblock more than an ally. A lot of it depends on kind of who you get. Um, if they already have a robust internal training department, you might get perceived as a threat to what they do. So, you know, yeah. this kind of thing gets weird and fuzzy depending on the organization. How would you define ethnography or ethnographic research? Let's start there. Oh, we're jumping into anthropology stuff now. Um, so, you see, you seem um, like someone who might uh, have some insider knowledge here. Yeah. And to, to be honest, I haven't I haven't looked at my old anthropology stuff in a long time. That's so, fine. Um, in terms of like an official definition, I, I'm going to get this wrong. Yeah, you're, you're going to give us um, the, the layperson's. Uh, but in terms of the way I think about this, ethnography is about embedding yourself with a group of people and trying to observe and understand them from their perspective rather than yours as an outsider. This was something that shifted a lot in anthropology. So, you know, there's kind of this classic view of like the anthropologist who goes and studies a group of people. And then I, you see this in like really old kind of texts on, you know, people in colonized areas. Yeah. Um, a more modern approach to anthropology is to really try and live and work alongside the people that you're studying so that you can really empathize with and understand what's important to them, what's not important to them, challenges and things like that. And to make this tangible, actually, if, if you'll allow me, uh, Philip, I have a story about this um, related to a professor I had in college who used to work for the UN doing actual ethnographic work. Yeah, I wanna hear um, about this. And, and I wanna just pause for a minute and say, yeah. you know, th this to me is relevant to topics like consulting because mm -hmm. in a way we, we partially replicate what you're describing, sometimes in a consulting mm -hmm. relationship. And sometimes you can see it from a power perspective. And it kind of harkens back to that old, more colonial form of we are going to study these, you know, these puzzles, these less 
I, I don't know what sorts of ideas were in people's heads, but you know, you can pr imagine it as like, you know, white people going to study non-white people or quote unquote primitive people. Right. And in a way, like it's easy to replicate that in a consulting relationship mm -hmm. and feel like, oh, we're going to study this unsophisticated client and see what help they need and, you know, lift them out of their, um, their backwardness. So that's it's, why this topic is so It's a recipe for failure. Yeah. Okay. So story related to what you just said, actually. So, um, so I had a, um, I had a professor in college who, um, taught six months out of the year. And then the other six months of the year, he worked with the United Nations as part of their kind of development program. Mm -hmm. um, and his specialty was specifically in peoples of the sea. So he would spend six months of the year living in a different coastal community, studying the people. Mm -hmm. And um, he told us a story once about a UN program. Um, so there was, a, um, there was a group of people in a remote coastal community who um, you know, their primary means of livelihood was fishing. And mm -hmm. they, they would fish in outrigger canoes, wooden, wooden boats. Right. Um, if anybody who's lived by the ocean, and I understand many people listening to this may not have, but um, if you've lived near the ocean, you know that salt water can be really, really damaging and corrosive. And yeah. so every year or two, the boats would fall apart. They'd need to build new boats or repair them. Um, and so the UN put in place a development project there where rather than <clears throat> these people continuing to use their wooden outrigger canoes, the UN sent them a bunch of metal boats that would, um, you know, hold up better, were designed to resist the elements. I think there were some sort of like aluminum or corrosive resistant kind of metal. Mm -hmm. um, and because they were a little bit heavier, they also sent them motors so they could go further and faster and do more fishing. And this program from the outside, as an outside perspective, or out, outsider perspective, seems like it makes a lot of sense. Right. But um, one of the things that they, well, they ignored a whole bunch of factors. So the first is those motorized boats seem like a great idea, except there's nobody in that village who knows how to repair them. So when they fail, they're now dead. Right. Um, the boats are too heavy to row. So once the motor goes, the boat is useless. Right. And um, the, uh, the big thing that they didn't account for is that there was a really specialized economy there. So the people who make the boats are very specialized and skilled artisans. And part of their fee for making those boats is that they get a percentage of the fish that are caught in return for providing canoes. Oh. And so when you drop a whole bunch of boats that are designed to last many seasons in a community like that, you don't actually help, you decimate the local economy. Right. Um, and so what ended up happening was after a couple of years, the fishermen hated the boats. They had a strong sense of community. And so they didn't, you know, like what, you know, like that kind of aspect of it. Um, and so the boats ended up being left on shore upside down as a way to store <laughs> all of the fishing gear from the elements when not in use. They basically became like really expensive beachside storage lockers. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, the UN had dumped a bunch of money into this project that was destined to fail from the start. And so my professor, his whole job at the UN was to go in and do ethnographic research within these coastal communities in advance of research projects, specifically so that that type of thing wouldn't happen in the future. And to bring this full circle, I think about what a lot of folks in 
you know, kind of the, the startup or the business community do and what I did when I was starting my business, which is look at a particular community that you're not a, not a part of and identify a problem and jump to an obvious solution that doesn't actually address the real kind of underlying causes or problems that that community has. It's really easy to do what the UN did with those boats um, if you don't really take the time to study and understand the people you're trying to, to serve. There's a sort of like mindset, a mindfulness that you might apply to to your work to try to not do that. Not your work, not you, Chris, but just the work that anyone is doing. You might apply a sort of mindfulness. Okay, I don't have all the answers. I need to listen more, like that sort of thing. Are there mm -hmm. perhaps more habit-based or behavior-based things that you might recommend that would also have a beneficial effect in helping us avoid this sort of thing? I probably have an unfair advantage here. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Just in the sense that for me, I did this on purpose. Um, I, the, the community I, I serve and I teach are people who I was, and I'm like, I'm part of that community too. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, you know, it's, it's not like, um, I'm a business person who's trying to go work with nonprofits, but I've never worked at a nonprofit. Like I'm a developer who's teaching developers who are maybe a couple of years behind where I was at. Um, right. and so it's, it's much easier for me to, to avoid some of those things. One of the, um, I think one of the, one of the things I've tried to be more mindful of as I've gotten more experience though, is, um, you know, there's the experts dilemma where it becomes really hard to remember what it was like when you were just learning once you've accumulated a certain amount of kind of foundational knowledge. Right. And I will be honest, the thing that has helped me there more than anything, it's not necessarily a habit, but um, everybody who buys my products gets access to a private Slack channel um, mm -hmm. where they can kind of hang out and ask questions and share, share cool stuff. And um, that has been so... Um, I've, I've had people be like, oh, it's not a lot to manage. And it's really not. I've gotten so much out of it just in terms of seeing the kinds of questions people ask. And it's really helped me, I think, keep my, my pulse on the kinds of things that people are struggling with, especially in an industry where technology changes so much. And like really make sure I don't lose that um, kind of that sense of, you know, what are people really struggling with? Um, that's something I'm always kind of worried about. And it's also really nice. Like I can just ask questions like, hey, um, what's the biggest challenge you're facing right now? I think one of the more important things that I try to do is not ask leading questions. Um, that's something I'm personally really bad at so to try to be mindful of, you know, like, I think this is a problem, not just asking, is this a problem for you? But asking a more open-ended question can lead to unexpected results. That's helpful. Thank you. Uh, I have no idea what your relationship with your dad is like or whether he's even still living. Do you think he gave you bad advice to get into HR? No. Um, he is still around. I actually just saw him a couple days ago. Oh, nice. We, um, I have a, him and I are very different people. He is, um, he's the type of person who loves to have a, a concrete plan and will work with laser focus mm. on, I'm at point A, I want to get to point B, bam. I am very much like Winnie the Pooh. Um, and <laughs> Wait, what do you so, mean by that? So um, if you've ever seen Winnie the Pooh, and it's been a long time for me now too, but um, you know, Winnie the Pooh had this tendency 
tendency to not really necessarily have an end destination beyond just the immediate kind of want or need. In his case, it was often honey um, or some <laughs> sorts of entertainment. So I, I don't do, I usually don't do five-year plans. Um, I'm not really big on, you know, setting up like multi-layered strategies. I'm very much kind of like, what do I want to do next? And then that usually leads me to something else that's interesting. And so the HR thing wasn't, it wasn't bad advice. I, I really had no kind of other like ideas or direction. So it was useful at the time. Um, I just view it as another stepping stone. Like I wouldn't have ended up where I am today. I don't believe if I hadn't taken that job in HR and if I hadn't ended up somehow in training department where I learned a whole bunch about career development, which helped me land my job in tech, kind of doing a career shift. And if I hadn't had a manager who had thought to ask me, well, can you learn you know, about building that app? Yeah, just a whole bunch of like random serendipitous kind of kind of moments. Yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't bad advice. Um, it was. Uh, yeah, it was just a kind of another random, <laughs> random direction for me. Um, I, it's I, the weirdest thing about running my own business is I tend to be um, I'm trying to find this balance between like a desired end state for my business and my general tendency to not plan that far in advance. Um, so it creates some weird dichotomies for me. I've observed this in other people and myself enough to make up a, a word for it. You know, one of those noun gets turned into a verb things. I call yeah. it cowpathing, what you're describing. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's oh, yep. also Winnie Pooing, Winnie the Pooing. <laughs> um, cowpathing, you know, there's this, I think, not true sort of urban myth that the streets of Boston were laid out by cows, right? Like cows were sort of wandering over pasture and made, uh, you know, they wandered more often in certain areas and those kind of got worn down into cow paths and then got turned into streets. Louisville, Kentucky is another city where, you know, you go around and you're like, who, who laid these streets out? It doesn't feel like it was humans. It feels like it was, you know, cows wandering around a big pasture. I don't think in either case it was actually that, but I mean, there's a software metaphor for looking at how users actually want to behave, looking at their behavior and then saying, well, let's, mm -hmm. Let's formalize that. Let's make that the way that things are done in this feature mm -hmm. or this user interface path or whatever it is. So I've just taken that metaphor and give it the name cowpathing because I think it really does describe how a lot of experts who are operating outside of a uh, an established discipline like uh, being a CPA or you know a, a licensed profession or a really w sort of totally, not totally, but mostly figured out profession like accounting or certain aspects of law, all of that stuff is kind of figured out. The rest of us, uh, we don't, there's not a, a roadmap we can follow. So I think we make it and I don't, I, I don't think most of us make it with five-year plans like you mentioned. I think we make it in exactly the same way you did, wandering around, following your interest you're going, you're going to have dead ends as you do that. And you're going to have, um, things that don't pay off. Like that was a great experiment, but I'll never do that again. Kind of a thing. Right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For um, sure. it took um, you, I've had a few of those too, kind of those, um, dead end circle back type things. Yeah. Yeah. It took you three years to get your first development job. Did I get yes. that right? What kept you going? Yeah. 
Um, you bombed interviews, you know? Like, oh, yeah, that was What that kept was you lot. going? Um, so um, there was a few things with that one. I normally don't have that much stick with itness. Um, hmm. It was, um, I think for me, it was just a growing discontent with the HR thing. And despite the bombed interviews, I'd had a really good experience with the tech community at large. In particular, um, like early on, I had reached out to some different folks who were kind of like well-known names in the industry just to ask them career advice. Um, and everybody I talked to was so open and generous and willing to share. And that was such a stark contrast from HR where so much of what we did and worked on was considered like a competitive advantage or hmm. like internal sensitive kind of stuff. Like mm -hmm. the tech community is very much like open source all the things and um, maybe a little less so now, but at the time. And uh, yeah, that just really, really appealed to me. There was this like really awesome kind of stand on the shoulders of giants ethos that I really, um, yeah, really liked and I wanted to be part of. Mm. Um, like I can remember one of the first things I open sourced, I literally like took someone else's thing, made like one minor change and republished it as my own thing, which in retrospect was a really crappy thing to do. I don't <laughs> think I even properly attributed them. Yeah. And the dude who made the original thing, like, shared it on Twitter, made a big deal out of it. It was like, congrats on your first commit. This is awesome. Like we just pulled this change into our internal version. And wow. I was like, like, that was just so exceedingly nice considering I had just made a giant faux pas that he didn't even like make a big thing out of. Um, and by rights probably should have. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just really wanted to be formally part of that community really badly. And that's what kept me going. That's interesting. To me, those are characteristics of an open system. There's mm -hmm. that kind of predisposition to, I mean, if anything, asking forgiveness rather than permission. <laughs> and <laughs> I hear you laugh when, when I say that, like that, that describes a lot that you did during that time, I imagine. Yes. Yeah. And, and then on, you know, on the receiving end of that, there's a position towards, yeah, you know, who cares? We're trying to do something much bigger than whether you followed these seven rules correctly. And so it's, it, you know, there's a lot of forgiveness, just natural inherent forgiveness in how the system works. And that's mm -hmm. also something I hear you describing. That's, that's really cool. Yeah, for sure. You know, for better or worse, there are definitely some downsides to that ask forgiveness culture mm -hmm. and tech. I think a lot of the, a lot of the more modern issues we see around privacy and ethics are related to that as well, um, yeah. you know, so there are definite, definite downsides, but in terms of, you know, being able to gain entry into a community, it definitely has its advantages. Okay. Today, as of today, and, and I, I'm more curious how you answer this intentionally provocative question than what the answer is. Uh, how famous are you, Chris? Oh, um, I want to say Z list internet famous. So mm -hmm. not, not terribly, okay. um, so which is an, good. That's, I don't, I don't ever want to be like real famous that, um, uh, yes, that of sucks. course, I, I can't imagine. <laughs> that's the first way of scoping that. So compared to awesome. other, um, let's call them household names. They're not like global worldwide household names. They're within yeah. mm -hmm. your community of peers. Let's say how yeah. famous are you compared to that? Yeah. Um, not, um, yeah, I guess if we were to put a few anchors, stakes in the ground, right? Mm -hmm. So um, just within within my sphere, you have 
you have folks like Wes Boss. Uh, he's actually probably just within like the JavaScript education space. He's mm -hmm. probably like top dog. He sells so much product mm -hmm. when he releases a new course. And I am, I am not even in his orbit. Mm -hmm. um, but I definitely have more name recognition than some other folks, even some like much more talented developers and engineers mm -hmm. that I know who do things like write articles and publish and share what they know. A big part of that has been um, like me deliberately trying to get my name out as much as possible. So that's been like a very deliberate kind of strategy on of mine, not because I want the fame. I actually like, I really wish I could get the business outcomes without it. But we, as a kind of a solo education business, I've observed that a lot of the business success is directly related to how well people know and trust you, the individual. Um, and so uh, it unfortunately almost feels like a like they have to go hand in hand. So um, I am reluctantly trying to increase my my public profile. There's something you said earlier that I also have a, a label for. So sure. you're inviting people to buy into an idea. And the idea, I won't uh, remember exactly how you described it, but it's the web could be more resilient. Um, mm -hmm. Software could be simpler, something like that, right? And not, not articulated here as cleanly as you did earlier. So you're inviting people to buy into this idea. And then there's you, the person, mm -hmm. you know, your voice sounds a certain way, you know, your mind works a certain way, you, your face looks a certain way, you have your face on some things. <laughs> so there's sort of Chris, the personal brand, and then Chris, the advocate for this, I, this way of doing things. I'll just call it an idea. I mean, more specifically, it's a way of doing things or an approach or a philosophy. Mm -hmm. To what extent do you find that the idea, promoting the idea is not enough and you do have to show up as a person with a face and a specific kind of embodiment that people either like and trust or don't? That's a great question. And I, I think the way I answer it depends a little bit on, on the angle. So there's two pieces to this. So, and a lot of it depends on kind of what's important to you. So for me, there's, there's two pieces. The first is I want the idea itself to grow and spread. And for that piece of it, different people, you can have a same idea message different ways, and it's going to resonate with different people equally, depending on who's delivering the message. Um, hmm. You know, uh, so I don't have a really good analog for this that I think really kind of like hits well, but well, no, actually that's not entirely true. You know, so I think like with, even within, within my space, right. Um, when I, when I teach in real life, I'm very loud and boisterous, but when I teach, I tend to have a little bit more like calm, understated kind of approach. Uh huh. And Wes Boss also has, you know, like a JavaScript fundamentals course, and he has a much more animated kind of presence on camera. Mm -hmm. Um, and that resonates with a lot of people. Like there's a lot of people who really like, they enjoy that presentation style. And I find a lot of the people who buy my stuff, some of whom also buy Wes's stuff, mm -hmm. like my stuff because of my more kind of understated approach. Um, and so it's, you know, a lot of the same concepts just presented differently. 
And so in that sense, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that, um, you know, the idea is spreading and I'm starting to see more more people kind of evangelizing a lot of the same stuff that I do. Uh Um, selfishly as someone who would like to make my living teaching and selling this stuff, it's obviously beneficial to me if people associate the idea with me and not with Wes Boss or someone else. And so kind of there's always this, for me, this this inner conflict between wanting the idea to be something bigger than me, but also wanting people to associate it with me such that um, I I can benefit from it and you know devote more time to it. And uh, yeah, that's that's been a, that's kind of been a thing I, I struggle with. I know you and I both both know Jonathan Stark. Yeah. Um, Jonathan's actually the one who introduced me to you. Um, and I can remember asking asking him a question not too long ago about someone who wanted to translate some of my articles into another language. And he kind of framed the question as, do you want to do you want to be the person that people think of around this content or do you want the idea to spread? You know, like the way you answer that will make this question really easy to answer either way. Uh-huh. Um, and it wasn't that clear cut. I think for him, it was a really clear cut question. But for me, it was really fuzzy because I kind of want both. And I, <laughs> you can't always have both. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a really kind of tough inner struggle for me, I think. Yeah, I, I think there's a bit of recency here. I, I think about folks like Kevin Kelly, Stuart Brand, who have almost ascended to this like emeritus position, I, I think. Mm-hmm. And this is, I'll be honest, a, a, not a fully educated opinion that I'm putting out here. Their direct relevance to questions in the world of technology comes across to me as a bit like dated maybe or but they're still given you know spots on stages and they're still really i think in a lot of ways sort of beloved figures within the the broader sort of older tech community and i think about that a lot because i think about relevance you know i think anyone who does anything at all in the world of technology thinks about their relevance over time so um, it's just it's just really interesting to hear that I'm not the only one who thinks about that and and sort of struggles with where is the right balance there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for for sure, it's um, <sighs> yeah. And now you know I'm starting to think about you know I a few years ago ageism in tech was a thing that I fully acknowledged but wasn't particularly relevant to me, and now that. I have less hair on the top of my head and (laughs) the hair on my face is a lot more white than it used to be. Um, That's also something I've been starting to think about um, a lot more, especially where um, our industry is very focused on tooling right now. And I'm very much evangelizing like, hey, let's use less of this, which is in in many ways kind of a dated idea. So I am that Principal Skinner clip from the Simpsons. Like, am I, am I old and out of touch? No, it's the kids who's the kids, right, who are, the wrong, kids are the problem constantly <laughs> is on loop in my head. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, related to myself specifically. Does that mean your biggest competition is really Moore's law? Potentially. Maybe not though. Um, I was looking at some data on this recently and there's kind of been this weird trend where the internet has gotten, um, I think four times faster over the last five to 10 years. Okay. And, the speed of the average website has stayed relatively the same, at least in terms of like page load time and things uh-huh. like that. Um, 
it's only increased by about 100 milliseconds despite the web getting four times as fast um hmm. so you know between between that and moore's law maybe starting to slow down yeah. um i'm less concerned with that i actually think within our industry i'm starting to see the pendulum swing back the other direction with people starting to feel like okay we've we've overdone it so you know i think that's potentially why i'm starting to see more and more of the types of stuff i've been talking about for a few years pop up but uh yeah that that part i'm less concerned with yeah i think i'm my bigger thing is the the whole like hey the whole industry is moving in this direction and i'm advocating for for something else you know will that will that always be will that always be viable you know one of the things i've observed with other people who work in tech education is um there can be a lot of churn when you're tool focused. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, I look at some friends I have who built React courses and then uh, React dropped React hooks and all of the recommendations on how to build things with React completely changed. Not that the old stuff didn't still matter, but there's all this new stuff and now this course is like instantly outdated. Right. Um, and when you build with kind of platform stable technologies, that's less of a concern. They have a little bit more of an evergreen kind of nature to them. And so anytime I've thought about maybe kind of digging into tooling a little bit, I always kind of like have this thing in the back of my head where like, then that becomes another thing I have to constantly update and maintain. And I don't, I don't want to. So yeah, I don't know. I kind of rambled over here, Philip. I think I went, I went way off tangent because that's a superpower of mine. So apologies. I'm dazzled <laughs> by your superpower. <laughs> no, it's interesting stuff because, um, well, here's the question I had sort of mentally queued up next, Chris. Mm -hmm. You're offering this idea, a way of doing things. Aside from your overpowering, incredible personality, your, um, your charisma, that's the word I'm looking at, your overpowering charisma, aside from that, what's, you know, what causes people to buy into this idea to say, you know what, mm -hmm. there's other ways to do things. I think this is right or better and the others are wrong or not as good. What what causes that in people? People who don't know you yeah. haven't been, you know, overpowered by your charisma. Yeah. So um just to be clear, I don't think many people are overpowered by my charisma. Um, yeah, I know. I think listeners I, are um, kind of joking around with you. <laughs> no, I, I I know that was tongue in cheek, but I will just you know, just as a one of the things I've often said about my my business and my marketing approach is I'm not I'm not really great at um, convincing people of things just generally in life. Like I, if, if you don't agree with kind of my central thesis, I'm not the type of person who can persuade very well. Right. Um, and so my customers are almost always people who had already kind of bought into the thing I'm selling. Right. Um, and are just looking for someone to kind of rally the troops. I'm really great at that. Like you're already hyped up. Yep. I can get us all kind of moving in the same direction. And so from what I've heard from my students, because again, benefit of having a Slack channel where you can talk directly to my students, yeah. um, the thing that seems to attract most people to my stuff is me articulating potentially in a little bit more clear and concise of a way than they had been able to up to this point, some of the stuff they were already feeling or thinking already. You know, so I go on, I go on podcasts, I write articles and a lot of my, my articles are very, um, 
you know, how to focus. But every now and then I write like a bigger high level, um, you know, uh, almost like a manifesto kind of thing. Like, uh, right. you know, here's what's wrong with the web. Mm -hmm. um, and those are usually the ones where I, I tend to draw new people in where they're like, oh yeah, I've really been like, I've been feeling like this is all too confusing or, you know, I get a lot of people who are like, I've been trying to learn this and I see so many articles that are like, just do these eight really complicated things that they assume <laughs> I know how to do. And I'm starting to feel like an idiot. Like maybe I don't belong here because like this feels really complicated and I don't get it. And then I'll come along and I'll be like, this is too complicated. If you don't know how to do this, let me, let me walk you through it you can totally do this. And that really, I think, resonates with a lot of folks. And so the core part of my teaching approach has, from the beginning, been to never assume that people know basic stuff. Because I can remember being that person who was trying to read all these tutorials that assumed I knew basic stuff. And for a long time, I felt like I don't have a CS degree. I'm a fraud. I don't belong here. And later learning that most people in the front end space do not have computer science degrees and taught ourselves. Yeah. But there's a lot more moving parts now. Um, and so, you know, the I think a lot of the attraction to my stuff is around my focus on demystifying buzzwords and concepts that kind of get thrown around as if they're assumed knowledge. There's that, and I'm also hearing you say that to an extent, like maybe if we try to make what you do into a genre, it's the genre of, yeah, there is a, there is a better way. And it's, it's the path is <laughs> yeah. through simplicity. Yes, that is absolutely a big part of it. I probably resonate strongly with people who hate, who hate complexity, just because I happen to be one of those people. Like I, my customer is my general customer is often someone who's a bit like myself, not always, because that would be boring. But um, it's, uh, it's often folks who like myself don't like overly complex systems. You mentioned two forms of earning visibility. One is uh, yeah. guesting on podcasts. Yep. And the other is uh, publishing on the internet. Mm -hmm. Is there other stuff like or could, is there maybe a more detailed view into how you earn visibility for yourself. Yeah, no, and I'm sure there is. Um, those are the two that I focus the most time on in large part because they're the most easily sustainable for me mm -hmm. um, and have the lowest friction. Like my whole business is optimized around laziness, Philip. Mm -hmm. um, and so <laughs> everything I do is really tailored to removing friction and inertia because otherwise I won't get it done. Yeah. Um, so they serve two different purposes, The for me anyways. So the, the writing, the writing does a few things. First, it provides just kind of a regular ongoing form of communication with existing customers and people who are already kind of sold on the hook or the idea that there's a simpler, more resilient way to make things for the web. And so it just, it's like a daily form of, I write every weekday, um, thanks to you and Jonathan, you both convinced me two years ago to make the switch. And it's been mm -hmm. the biggest thing that I've ever done for my business. So that is just a daily line of communication. It brings in a lot of questions that spawn additional articles. It also provides me with when I'm selling things, a more frequent form of communication that doesn't feel invasive because mm -hmm. I'm already in the habit of talking with people every day. So it's not like you haven't heard from me in three weeks and now I'm trying to sell you something. Yeah. 
But the other thing it does, and you have spent a lot of time talking about this, both on your podcast as well as in, in a lot of your emails, um, is this idea of, cult, I'm going to use your phrase here, cultivating expertise. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of my writing is, as you've described in some of your work, me thinking out loud about a problem and kind of learning in the open. Mm -hmm. um, and so I will write an article and then I'll get a question something I didn't explain very clearly. So I'll write it again, but articulate something a little bit differently or dig deeper into an area that I kind of glazed over. And what I have found is there's this really interesting cycle of, I write articles, some of them seem to resonate really strongly with folks. And I get a lot of, a lot of either positive feedback or questions, which causes me to dig deeper into things. If I I do that enough, I find that there's certain trends or certain topics that seem to hit really well. And those kind of get repurposed and fleshed out a bit more into books and video courses of mine. Over time, I accumulate enough courses around maybe a series of interrelated topics, or I start to get enough questions that kind of overlap or thread between all of them that those then become bigger kind of programs. Um, I run kind of semi-asynchronous online workshops as more of a premium offering and not unlike your expertise incubator, incubator cohort. And uh, the newsletter is kind of this foundational thing from which all of my other products spawn. Now, one of the really awesome side benefits of writing daily that I hadn't considered is I have a flow because I do a lot of code sharing. I didn't want to just author that directly in my newsletter client um, because syntax highlighting code and just writing code in an email client is difficult. Yeah. So I tend to write markdown files, which I publish to my website. And then my CMS automatically converts these code blocks into syntax highlighted code for me, publishes an RSS feed. And then my email provider, um, it's currently MailChimp, I'm exploring CodeKit at this time, pulls that RSS feed into a daily newsletter that it blasts off to all my subscribers. And so I end up with this archive of stuff on the web. And I didn't really think through the amazing SEO implications of doing that um, mm -hmm. until I'd already been doing it for a while. Um, but I am now on the homepage of Google for any, almost any vanilla JavaScript related search. Mm -hmm. um, at least one article, usually more, because um, I end up writing about the same topic multiple times now. and. A lot of people find me that way now. Um, having a published article also gives people something to kind of share on Twitter. And that provides a bit of a virtuous cycle because I have at the bottom of my um, every article on the web, I have a sign-up form. Like if you like this article, put your email here and you'll get more of them. So that's been a really, really kind of big thing for me. Um, a majority of my, my product sales come from my email list. Um, in fact, these days I don't even really bother kind of announcing things on Twitter anymore. Um, mm -hmm. I just kind of push it out to the email list and let the cards fall where they may. I can dig into the podcast thing too, but I imagine you might have some questions on the email thing. So I'm going to pause to let you do that if, if that's the case. I appreciate it. Yeah, there's a clean, beautiful code. That's a clean, beautiful system for, well, it, you know, it struck me, is that how people are promoted? in big businesses is there's a sort of feedback layer, performance mm -hmm. reviews, et cetera. And that's a part of deciding who gets promoted. It's almost like you're promoting ideas up from, oh, I just, you know, cow path my way across this. 
on the email list, oh, wow, there's, there's feedback. That got a good um, performance review from the list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to promote it to a small pocket guide. Okay, and that gets you know continued good feedback. I'm going to promote it further up the chain. Yeah, that's a really good way to, to describe it. it is, it's like cow pathing for ideas, for sure. How do you, this is like one of those nerdy tool questions, but um, do you have multiple ideas going at once or do you instead sit down when it's writing time on a daily basis, open a blank editor and write and then publish or how, what does that look like? The answer is yes to both. Um, I have ADHD and so there's always a t- ton of ideas. I have a surplus of ideas of mm-hmm. ideas, and never enough time to do them all because yeah. my the inside of my my head is a little bit like a lottery ball machine. Yeah, um, <laughs> but, yeah I've heard it called um, popcorn brain. Uh, also, yes, this beautiful oh, analogy. Really good analogy too. <laughs> yes. So I um I have um, I found the best thing that has worked for me. ADHDers have a tendency to chase shiny new tools and change them out every few weeks. But mm-hmm. I found the thing that has always worked best for me is just simple bulleted lists. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's gotten to the point now where I even use those for note taking because yeah. trying to have multiple systems is just an, a recipe for ruin for me. So what, what in my to-do app, uh, yeah. So I use Microsoft to-do. Um, okay. And the reason I love Microsoft to-do, which uh, is built by the team that used to create Wonderlist before they got acquired. The killer feature in that app for me is they have this view called My Day, where in the morning you can open up your to-do list and either view by different lists or view, they have like a view all kind of category, but you can like on your phone, just swipe right to add it to My Day. And so I can go through my list of all my things and just say, I'm going to tackle these five to seven things today. Mm-hmm. And then on the My Day view, I can just see the things that that I have to get done. So in To Do, I have a list called Daily Emails. And anytime I get an idea for a daily email, I drop it in there. And so on any given morning, I open up that list and I scroll through and I pick the one that calls to me and I just write about it. Yeah. Um, so right now that list is about 92 items long. That is down from 150 a few months ago where I decided there were some things in there. I just, if I hadn't written about them by now, I wasn't going to, and I deleted them out. But the list generally keeps growing because as I publish articles, people ask questions, they get added to the the flow. As I browse Twitter, I see people ask questions or share cool things, they get added to the list. And so I, I generally have more ideas for things to write about than I have days in the week to write about them. Um, and I remember when you first kind of pushed me to do daily writing, I was really resistant because I had absolutely no idea how I would ever come up with enough ideas to keep writing consistently five days a week, 52 weeks a year. How long did it take to get through whatever initial difficult period there was? So what I did when you kind of proposed this to me, I said to myself, if I can come up with a month's worth of ideas in 15 minutes, I will give it a try for a month. Oh, that's so interesting that you scoped it that way. (laughs) Yeah. So I set a 15 minute timer. I wrote down, I came up with, I think 25 ideas. I was shooting for 30, but I came up with 25. Uh I was like, well, this is a good enough start. And Uh I had like a 38 person email list at that point. Yeah. And it kind of took over before that month was up. I started writing. People immediately started. I lost a few folks Mm -hmm. and then regained my list size plus within the week. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
immediately started getting questions back, which led to additional articles. And by the time the month was up, the, what I think Jonathan calls flywheel effect had already started where I was getting more questions in than I had days of the week to write about things. Um, and it really just kind of took on a life of its own. And now it's at the point where I, I feel weird when I don't do it. If I take a vacation, I will sometimes schedule a week of articles ahead of time rather than trying to write them when I'm, I'm on vacation. And then when I come back, it always feels really weird because I've kind of been out of practice for a week. Yeah. But I find that writing the morning of is, is just a part of my routine now, and I feel weird without it. Yeah. One of the themes I'm always interested in in this podcast is the sort of, it worked right away versus the, I had to do it several times or I had to stick out a tough period of it not working before I got the yeah. feedback, the traction, whatever. So it's always, I mean, I think overall, like you do something long enough, you're going to get a little bit of both. Um, so I'm not sure there's one that's better than the other. Uh, I, I have slogs. There are definitely periods of time where I'm like, ah, like I have a list of a hundred things and I just don't want to write about any of them. But yeah. that's also partially my, my ADHD tendency to not want to do things that I don't find personally exciting at that mm -hmm. particular time. Mm -hmm. um, it makes running, running a business really challenging actually, um, yeah. because if it's not, if it's not exciting, I don't like to do it. A comment and then a question. The question is, so I don't sure. forget it, what's been most helpful? in addressing that, or, or are there some things that have been helpful? Because I think a lot of us, even if we, if we aren't diagnosed as ADHD, I think the internet mm -hmm. uh, amplifies those tendencies, just you know, be working online, sort of always being in front mm -hmm. of a computer. The comment is, I've also had that experience of, maybe it was like this for you, where you, you evaluate a piece of software and you're like, this is good, this is fine. And then you come across the killer app and you're, you're like sold. You're like, this is amazing. Or the, sorry, the, not the killer app, the killer feature that you described. Mm -hmm. For me, it's this RSS reader, Inno reader. Yeah. A lot of RSS feeds do give you the full text. Not all do. The feature that sold me with this is on, on a mobile device. You just pull down on the article. You're looking at the excerpt that you've seen, and it goes and fetches the full content, strips out oh. the ads, and formats it. So with just a finger swipe, You've not had to go to their to the website, and I understand why they do this. They're using the ad model, but it for me was this killer feature <laughs> that just made me yeah. love the app immediately <laughs> once I discovered it. Anyway, uh, things that have been helpful for you in managing ADHD. Oh yeah, um, I'm still kind of working through them a little bit. Um, I was diagnosed as a kid, but this was during like the 80s when everybody got over medicated, and uh -huh. so. Um, yeah my parents never really pursued anything with it because they didn't want that for me. Yeah. Um, and uh, things are a lot different now. Um, so yeah, so some of the, I think the biggest thing I've found, well, there's been two. The first is I spent years trying to fight my, I call it my natural biology around yeah. this, uh -huh. where like if I wasn't kind of properly in the right headspace to do something, I would just try and force my way through it. And these days I've found it's actually way more beneficial to just step away, do something outdoors in particular, really, um, really works for me. And from doing additional research on ADHD, um, I, I'm finding that they're increasingly learning that they call it green time, but getting, getting time outdoors, mm -hmm. um, is 
particularly beneficial to ADHD brains um, in terms of like resetting them, helping them get a little bit more like focus or clarity. Um, and so I go for walks, I go for hikes, and I'll either think about the thing I'm trying to do while I'm while I'm on the walk, or just completely ignore it and clear my head. But mm. depending on kind of where I'm where I'm personally at, but um, I often find that when I come back, I'm much better able to to focus. Um, the other thing that I've I've done that's been really beneficial for me is like there's a whole bunch of things that seem like you have to do them for a business, but you don't necessarily have to. And I, I've gotten a lot more comfortable with just throwing that stuff away. So I'm smiling I, so big. Tell me the one that's like the most ridiculous thing you thought you had to do that's been thrown by the yeah, wayside. Yeah. Um, I look at marketing, for example, like conference talks actually is a really relevant one. Uh -huh. um, I was for a long time really focused on like wanting to give conference talks because I enjoy speaking, um, but it also seemed like a really good way to become like a, a known person. I look at a lot of the folks that I know in the industry and I know a lot of them from having seen them yeah. speak at conferences. I, um, I am a social introvert. Yeah. I really enjoy talking to people, but I find it utterly exhausting and I need alone time to recharge. Yeah. And so meetups are good. Podcasts are good because I get to talk to people, but they're only an hour. Conferences, you go and you speak at the conference and then there's like another six to seven hours of conference that you have to deal with. <laughs> and um, it's maybe it's a little bit different now where it's online and so you can just like literally quit the rest of the conference. But I, I just find conferences absolutely exhausting. Yeah. And um, so I, I just don't really do that anymore. I've stopped submitting RFPs. I don't really talk to them anymore. And in terms of like a juice for squeeze, it just doesn't really, um, I don't really get a lot out of it. And so I've tended to not really focus on that. For a long time, I resisted doing video courses. I've come around to them just because they're so much more profitable than eBooks are. But yeah, I'm trying to think of some other, some other kind of examples here of things. Do you have any that have, have like for you that you've dropped? I feel like our list is probably pretty similar. I've taken a lot of marketing cues from you. You know, um, something I did for a while that, um, I don't, I don't know how much context I need to give to make this comprehensible, but I, it was part of CalPathing. I was fascinated with the idea of live streaming. It's such a different context. And so I just kind of had to experiment with it. It was probably also an excuse to just get some toys, some nicer, uh, you know, camera gear that mostly now I just use for regular Zoom meetings. <laughs> I like have the the most fancy um, <laughs> Zoom meeting set up. So it was a little bit of a like, well, I just want to play with this and see what the potential is. And I do think a lot of good things come out of that. For me, daily emailing was essentially started under the same premise of like, well, let's just see what I can do with this. This could be fun. It's, it's weird and unconventional. And, and so I came from a, from a perspective of play. So there was that, but there was also this more like, well, you know, towards the pinnacle of things that you can do to, to earn trust and gain visibility is speaking. And some people use that extremely well. So I felt like I needed to build up some competence with that. It was a combination of those two things. And the way to do it, to me, it just seems obvious. You don't, uh, I mean, yeah, sure, if it's easy, get an invitation to somebody else's stage. But if that's not close at hand, 
just make your own stage. It, the cost is almost zero, you know, aside from the fancy video equipment, uh, you know, digital mm-hmm. stuff in the internet has brought down the cost of so many things so close to zero. I realize it's not zero for everybody, mm-hmm. but you know, it's so close to zero. Why not just make my own stage? So you know, I did some live streaming on Twitch and YouTube live and I'm not doing that in, in the same way now. I'm not doing it at all right now, but when I do it, I think it'll be pre-recorded stuff rather than live because that's the next frontier of learning something. Uh, it's one thing to tell my clients, yeah, you should speak. It's another thing to actually <laughs> viscerally know what that involves as I'm advising yeah. them about that stuff. So I have to try these things myself. That's an example of something that I've I've kind of changed the configuration of it because um, it's high effort, <laughs> like you're saying. and. You know, you kind of have to get it up sometimes to do that stuff. Yeah. One of the other things um, that just occurred to me as you were talking was um, the, so for a lot of my video courses, most video courses I see, they have the speaker's face also visible. Right. Um, I don't do that because I find it distracting. Um, so you're and talking over a slide deck or a, or a screen share or something. Yeah. Or even if I'm like talking to code, like just having my my face there, I know there's, you know, like, I've heard people who advocate for this talk about how like people enjoy seeing another human face. Right. I'm sure that's all true. But, you know, again, kind of the optimizing for friction. I also used to be really, um, I try to be really polished in both my writing and my um, my video work. You know, if I said any ums or ahs or likes, have to redo the takeover, read uh-huh. from a script. And I've given up on that level of perfection because it gets in the way of me actually being able to create content. One of the things that really helped push me over that hurdle was hearing from my students that they liked the unpolished versions of my stuff better. Okay. Um, I was going to ask if you had evidence that pushed you one way or the other. Yeah. I, um, I ended up rushing something out once and, uh, apologized for it. And a bunch of students were like, Oh no, this is, this feels way more casual. You feel less stiff. Like I like this a lot more. And I was like, all right, cool. You don't mind the ums and ahs. And they're like, oh, we didn't even notice them. And I was like, all right, perfect. Cool. We'll, nice. uh, we'll go there. And then Paul Jarvis, he, he really gave me a model for um, kind of being able to be yourself as a business person. Mm-hmm. Um, early on, he had kind of written this article about finding your rat people. Um, he had a, a handful of adopted rat pets. And mm-hmm. <laughs> he wrote this really interesting article about how like, it's not for everybody, but you'll find that there's people who really enjoy it and that becomes your community. And he got me really comfortable with the idea that I don't have to appeal to everybody. I tend to swear a fair bit in kind of my student interactions in my articles, um, just cause that's who I am in real life. Yeah. Um, and as I've let go of this idea of needing to be like a very particular polished version of myself, it's become a lot easier to run my business. So I'm, I'm grateful to, to Paul for that. I think such a helpful exercise, unless you're just like mega easily offended by stuff that is different than you is just to go try to think of the weirdest niche thing you can think of <laughs> and then to try to find the community that has formed around that. I mean, depending on what you choose, it's not always easy to find the community, but it just reminds you how big a place the world is and how many rat people there are there. Chris, um, I need to wrap this up because I asked for a certain amount of time. We're at the end of that. Thank you so much for this view into 
what your journey of self-made expertise has been like. How can folks check out what you are up to? Yeah, uh, absolutely. If you want to, um, if you want to learn about, more about me and my work, um, best place to do that is at gomakethings.com. Um, you can check out my newsletter, uh, my courses, my bajillion different side projects. That's kind of my, my home on the internet.